We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh from New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Jie Ting Ye from Cadigalan Media. Good to be here. And tonight we'll be discussing referendum petitions up the yin-yang, countermeasures to China's new residence permit for ROC nationals, Uber making both plans and waves back here in Taiwan, English as an official language, and garbage. Lots and lots and lots and lots of garbage. And we'll begin, though, with it being that time of the year once again when the government rolls out its plans for getting the United... Getting, well, not into the United Nations, but getting the United Nations to, well, notice Taiwan. Recognise Taiwan, too strong a word. Notice Taiwan, probably the word to use. Now, this week, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu said that the main goal in the government's bid for greater UN participation this year is to ensure the island's voice is heard internationally. Now, Wu didn't say, though, whether the government has requested the US and other world powers speak up for Taiwan at the September meeting in New York, saying instead only that his ministry is seeking all the international support it can get. However, Deputy Foreign Minister Kelly Scher went on to say that as in previous years, the government will ask its diplomatic allies to speak on behalf of Taiwan during the general debate and will also request the UN not deny Taiwanese nationals access to its meetings and activities activities and also insist that Taiwanese reporters are allowed to, well, report from the UN about well, the UN meeting. And of course, it's in New York, so Taiwan's civic groups in the United States, as well as overseas communities from Taiwan, are once again scheduled to hold events in the Big Apple during the UN session. Now, these statements come ahead of the 73rd session of the United Nations General Assembly, which takes place in mid-September. So there we go, Brian. Much the same? Nothing surprising? Would it surprise you there's nothing surprising? No, I don't think there's anything surprising. I think as with past years, the type of institution <clears throat> doesn't wish to push too hard on the issue, yet at the same time, if it doesn't do anything on the issue, it would still be criticized domestically. Um, perhaps it simply is that the type of institution currently hopes to keep out of the international eye. It doesn't want to see, be seen as an international troublemaker. And so this year, it intends to take another low-key approach rather than an approach which could maybe make a gamble and try to elevate Taiwan to, uh, once again, a position in which it is discussed globally. Um, Again, this all takes place in the context of the, uh, the Trump administration, which is very uncertain with regards to its Taiwan stances. And uh, I think we'll have to see. Though I think, as we will see, with, as with previous years, um, Taiwanese civic groups in the United States will have some form of protest. And I know that a day of action is planned for September 22nd, uh, particularly regarding the uh, listing of Taiwan as part of China by certain airlines. Right, so Jieting, low-key approach, good thing, bad thing? Well, I think for the United Nations, you're um, really dealing with other governments, right? So there is really not much of a public opinion or a sort of a democratic uh, sort of political push to this. Um, in, I mean, I think the, the organizers of um, the Keep Taiwan Free rally, which came out of the... Um, the UN for Taiwan rally that's been going on in um, New York for decades. Um, and there, you know, there, there's several goals, you know, definitely to raise awareness with the public on Taiwan, um, if not to speak directly to the um, UN itself. Um, you know, I think with um, something like this, unless there is some sort of an opening, which 
or you know there's some sort of a change in the um, the status quo with um, the UN. I don't think there's um, much room for Taiwan to do something that's um, very different. Right, because you you lived in New York for a long time. I mean, you must have mm-hmm. seen you see you saw these rallies. Um, yeah, and Ting is also from New York, so <laughs> it's funny enough, actually. Um, right, that's right. <laughs> Neither of us are there right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, we will see more of the same. Um, these kind of demands have been from ongoing from the Taiwanese uh, community and the Taiwanese American community for decades, and uh, that, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. At the same time, it's. Uh, a question as to how this kind of activity can expand. I mean, um, it's been going on for so long that uh, it's, it's basically known in New York, yet at the same time, it clearly hasn't had its effect because Taiwan is still excluded from the UN. I mean, I was going to ask that. I mean, do, do these rallies they have every year in New York, that obviously make, they make news in Taiwan. It's like big headlines, you know, Taiwan supporters in New York rally. What about do they make the news in New York? I don't really think it does. I think uh, New York is large enough that there's these kind of political realities basically all the time from different nationalities. Um, also, you might just think it's some kind of cultural activity or a flash mob or anything like that. Um, there's just too much that goes on. And so it, is, it isn't a widely discussed activity, but uh, the fact that it has persisted for so long is probably um, still worth noting. And I think that's probably the significance of the, uh, this kind of event. Right, and of course... Yeah, what, then- sorry, carry on, Jetting. Oh, no, I'm just saying then again, I think there is um, a uptick in the attention given to Taiwan by, um, of course, people in the Trump uh, administration, also people, um, policymakers in D.C., mm-hmm. um, and as well as I think there is an uptick in the coverage of Taiwan in sort of um, mainstream U.S. media as well. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's to the level where we see something drastically different this year, um, but... I do think that there um, could be some more of the coverage or there could be some more of the discussion a little bit more than in the past year. Mm, I think that's true. I think that's also why it's quite interesting that the uh, Tsai administration, again, has it seems not to want to push too hard on the issue this year. Um, it was my idea that, that suspended efforts to really push for Taiwan's inclusion into the UN, um, whereas this occurred on, regularly under Chen Shui-bian. And Tsai has actually continued uh, Ma's policies by not uh, continuing to push for Taiwan to be part of the UN. Um, probably, again, as out of fear of being labeled a troublemaker in the way of Trentrapian. Um, but even in this kind of current climate, she does not seem willing to do that. Well, but of course, one less country will be speaking out for Taiwan. <laughs> of course, El Salvador won't be speaking out for Taiwan. I mean, did that make a difference, Brian, or not? Uh, I think probably not. I mean, um, Taiwan's diplomatic allies primarily do serve this role of speaking up for Taiwan in international organizations, um, such as with the UN or with other uh, UN-affiliated bodies. However, uh, one ally does not make a big difference, and in the end, it is primarily about these larger powers that have a uh, great say, such as the United States. Yeah, I... I'm actually not 100% sure if the Thai administration is primarily concerned with being labeled a troublemaker. Um, I mean, just given what we've seen the Trump administration, I mean, I don't think anybody is going to be nervous about seeing as more capricious than the Trump administration these days, right? But I, I mean, I think there are obviously there are concerns about um, you know the what is the right strategy, what is the right approach. Um, you know, and I think, as I said, in with the case of the UN, you're really um, trying to convince the other delegations in the UN, i.e., other governments in the world, right? Um, not necessarily. There's no popular vote, right? There's no um, direct democracy in the UN. So, 
um, you know, being something of more of a flashy public relations campaign might not be, um, you know, might not be as useful here. Mm, yeah, I think that's right. Um... What about reporters? I mean, do you, of course, the big thing about let reporters from Taiwan go to the UN. Do you think we're going to be hearing the same stories we always hear about reporters being turned away, Brian? It's possible. It is quite possible. Um, you know, there are uh, UN policies that do not allow Taiwanese to enter the UN without a uh, with, if they if they try to enter on the basis of a Taiwanese form of ID. Um, I don't know what the, would be the case with reporters. Yet at the same time. Um, I am a not sure how coverage would substantially differ, whether inside or outside. And b uh, last minute changes by China or last minute pressure by China is not unheard of, so they could still be blocked. I believe. Yeah, I I do remember um, going into the UN building as tourists with some friends on Taiwanese passport. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that was a very long time ago, right? And you know, China, the efforts to which China is trying to pressure Taiwan or trying to basically block. Any semblance of Taiwan being recognized as a um, any sort of a political unit in the world, um, you know, it's obviously intensified since you know ten, fifteen years ago. So, um, you know, I think as Brian said, I think we will see. You know, given the current environment, um, I mean, there's not. I don't think the action is much around the UN these days, right? Um, but obviously, with the U.S. attitudes towards China and Asia in general, and obviously China's. Um, increased aggression and China's increased activity. Um, you know, we there might be something at the UN. I don't think so, but I guess we'll see. Right, moving on. And candidates for November's local election have been busy this week submitting their registrations. Now, some, such as the DPP's Taipei mayoral candidate, Pasu Yao, did so surrounded by party officials. And they made lofty statements and yelled slogans, while others, such as incumbent Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe, did so alone. And then, amusingly enough to me, they complained about the process. Anyway, along with the politicians registering... Also, parties and civic groups submitted registrations for their referendums to the Central Election Commission this week. Now, the KMT delivered petitions in support of three referendum proposals that it hopes to see added to the ballot for November's local elections. The KMT is seeking a referendum on air pollution regulations, a referendum on whether a new coal-fired power plant should be built in New Taipei, and a referendum on not to lift a ban on food products and areas of Japan affected by the 2011 Fukushima incident. Now, along with those three referendums, organisers have a petition for a referendum on whether the island should use the name Taiwan instead of Chinese Taipei at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games have collected over 400,000 signatures and they're also popping off to the Central Election Commission to file their registration to have that referendum held in November. Now, also, an anti-gay marriage group submitted its referendum to the Central Election Election Commission this week as it seeks to block legalization of same-sex unions. Now, the Happiness of Next Generation Alliance is seeking to remove same-sex education from the school curriculums and also to redefine the civil code's definition of marriage as solely between a man and a woman. Well, needless to say, that petition stoked the ire of DPP lawmakers, New Power Party lawmakers and LGBT support groups here who basically are having their own campaign to get people to vote no to that 
referendum. But anyway, looking at these referendums, Brian, I mean, a, a big hodgepodge of referendums <laughs> there, really. I think that's absolutely right. Um, there's a large amount of referendums now going on, basically on a lot of hotbed issues. Um, I think that political parties are really taking advantage of changes to the referendum back in order to um, first see where public sentiment is on regarding certain issues, but also just as a way to score easy points, um, regardless of whether some of these referendums do succeed or not. At the same time, um, we do see with the, the referendums that have gotten in that it seems like the parties with the most resources are easily able to get referendums. Uh, for example, the three referendums that the KMT submitted were not reported on very much. Uh, this kind of just materialized out of nowhere. They so, were this morning in the Liberty Times, of right, course, because right. apparently, according to the Liberty Times, several of these referendums, or maybe all of these referendums, they have to have signatures and petitions to get support for them, and they need X hundred thousand amount of signatures. And apparently, according to the Liberty Times today, dead people <laughs> signing these petitions. <laughs> so it seems like uh, these kind of accusations do dog the KMT with regards to vote buying or uh, fraudulent voting and so forth, and I, I suppose this is no exception. Um, it just does seem to me that the party apparatus of the KMT or even the resources that anti-gay groups, which are based on churches, based out of churches, have has allowed them to build up to referendums quite qu quickly. Whereas the referendum on the uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics or the referendum that's in favor of gay marriage, those took a lo little longer time to build up. And it was only really when activist groups and NGOs and so forth started putting substantial resources into uh, flyering and campaigning and being on the street that these referendum campaigns really picked up. So it's a question, has this just reinvented the wheel in terms of uh, voting, that already when you were voting, it was parties which had resources which could perform better. Right, Jerting, do you think there's too many referendums possibly? Um, I, I, well, I'm not the person to ask about that. Um, you know, and I think with the change of referendum act, um, basically the, the, the answer is, you know, more the merrier, right? Um, because the changes to the referendum act is, uh, were made to remove barriers for um, people submitting petitions for referendums. Right. And so I think um, in this case, you know, this, I, I think what's interesting is this is really the first time Taiwan, the, the general public voting, the voters in Taiwan gets to actually decide on policy matters big and small, right, to directly decide. And it's very, it's a, you know, direct up or down vote on a, you know, on, on, on a question that was that's presented to them. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody is able to say whether there are too many or too few. Um, and as Brian noted, you know, these are elections, these are campaigns and, you know, anything that applies to electoral campaigns, um, you know, you have campaign managers, you have, um, you know, campaign consultants, you have, you know, people, bright, you know, all sorts of anything that will get you votes with a candidate will also get, you know, could potentially also get your votes on a referendum, right? You're going to see billboards or you'll see ads, you know, and I think this is all fair game, right? And I, I think that's, really the spirit of the referendum is to say, okay, look, you know, we are going to basically let the people decide and, you know, decide they may and decide they will. But do you think, my point, not, not is there too many referendums, but Brian, do you think the general public might be a bit miffed as there's too many boxes to tick? on their ballot card. I think actually the general public is quite miffed about it. Um, it hasn't really broken out yet, but there is a lot of discontent that all these things are going on, that this has opened a up a can of worms. Um, it might actually be the people that are pushing for referendum who do um, take some blowback on that. 
Um, that really remains to be seen, though. I think it really has to depend on what happens with the referendum, or these referendums actually take place. Um, that's when, if there is blowback, that will increase. But it could actually go both ways. Um, I think also there's plenty of room of outrage because the it's a question how to me how the Central Election Commission will react to so many referendums, some of which conflicted with each other. Um, there has to be some way of maybe they might they might put forward some way of trying to streamline this for um, elections when people do vote on these things. Um, it also is possible that they may block some referendums as unconstitutional or perhaps, for example, with regards to the name under which Taiwan participates in the 2020 Olympics. Um, there may be seen, but. If that happens, that could also stoke a large amount of outrage. Because there's already questions about that. Because, of course, mm. the people that backed it said we should do it. But then the premier came out and said, look, it doesn't matter. I have the referendum, but we can't change anything anyway. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And also uh, there was outrage previously over the fact that the uh, anti-gay marriage referendum was allowed to pass. So there's plenty of room for contestation about which is allowed to be passed and which aren't. Um Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned on the show before, right, so in California, when we... um when we do vote in California, there is generally about ten to twenty different referendum questions that are that are presented. And honestly, I think I mean, just speaking for myself, I, mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think anybody is reasonably. Well, I don't think I should be reasonably expected to be well informed enough to all twenty different issues to make an you know, informed decision, right? And you know, but you know, I think, I think. There is, you know, there is room in a democratic society for for referendum, and you know whether or you know I think I think this is no matter what people say right now, this is the time to try them. And in Taiwan, you know, this has not ha- actually happened before. So if we are, you know, talking about an election where hey, there's like seven, ten, even fifteen different questions that people vote on, let's try it and see what happens, right? I think that's right. Um, I also wonder, because this is the first time this has happened, how binding the referendum will be. Um, even if the referendum passes, and though the government is required by law to do this, there's plenty of room for the government to drag its feet. Um, for example, with regards to construction of uh, infrastructure projects such as power plants, the government could always just drag that on forever. And even if the people are in favor, let's say, they might not just they just might not build it. Um, there's always, there's always room for that kind of uh, negotiation. Right. Let's move on to some cross straight news this week, and this was rather. Well, technically cross-strait news, angry cross-strait news maybe in some ways, because the Mainland Affairs Council is warning Taiwan nationals about applying for China's new residence permit. It has said that they will not have their household registration automatically revoked here in Taiwan if they get one of these new Chinese residence permits. However, the council is warning that the government could seek to impose certain restrictions on citizenship rights of people who choose to apply for China's new residence permit and while certain people might be banned from doing, like, certain public sector jobs where classified information is being released. Now, of course, Brian, the the permit, the residence permit, has come under a lot of scrutiny in recent weeks. We had issues with, like, it, it can get into people's lives. There's concerns about fingerprint, concern about scanning, and concern about information that Beijing could put on this residence permit. That's right. Uh, there's concern that this could become a way for China to collect biometric information from Taiwanese citizens. Uh, Beijing is also quite good at big data, as I think uh, is quite well known. Um, this could allow for 
censorship, uh, surveillance of Taiwanese citizens, um, knowing what they're up to uh, could possibly lead to more incidents such as the Limingzhi incident. If uh, China is aware of what Taiwanese citizens are doing, uh, their political views and so forth, uh, could even allow for, let's say, a means of, hypothetically, a means of knowing someone's political views and maybe setting them out of social services. Um, there's the notion of social credit, which is raised in China. Um, as a way to monitor people's political views on using big data. Um, an ID card might actually not just be that sophisticated. It could just be a way of trying to lure Taiwanese over to China by lowering the uh, distance between the, the gap between the privileges which are allowed to Chinese citizens and Taiwanese citizens, which is in itself a strong incentive. Um, I think it also raises questions in Taiwan regarding security that Taiwan, it's been discussed for a while that Taiwan doesn't really have a good system of dividing between classified information and unclassified information. Um, Taiwan is frequently accused of information leaks or information getting out to China despite the obvious threats. Um, so it raises a number of questions, I think. I think, I mean, on the political front, right, this, um, I mean, from, from the Beijing perspective, this definitely makes a lot of sense, right? It's saying, well, if we come, if the, if you consider Taiwan to be part of your country, then give the people of Taiwan rights of you know your citizens, right? Because technically, to them, to Beijing, Taiwanese citizens are Chinese citizens, right? And so I think this you know definitely has that political dimension as well as you know saying, hey, you know we are going to treat you just like you know we're going to stop treating you like foreigners or we're going to stop you know, essentially by you know, in practice treating you as foreigners you know and so I think you know I I, I think it this is um, the rather thorny issue for the Taiwanese government to deal with right because if you um, you know on the one hand if you put your foot down and say okay anyone who gets one of these cars gets you know there's Taiwan the ROC you know, Taiwanese citizenship revoked um, automatically, then you know it's really you're you're going to I, I you know I think there's going to be backlash for doing something like that, right? Where um, on, on the other hand, of course, you know China is a sensitive, you know China is the you know China is not like any other country in the world, right? And China does claim sovereignty over Taiwan, right? And is hostile towards Taiwan, right? And so you know obviously with all the risks, you know I think this is something that the Taiwanese government does need to, you know, really take, um, you know, really, really think about how to deal with. Apparently, according to Beijing, these residence cards, Brian, will make it easier for people to live, work and study in China. But apparently, if, if you ha they don't, the cards don't actually entitle you to any benefit in China. Mm -hmm. That's right. Although uh, it does come at the same time that Beijing is offering substantial benefits to uh, Taiwanese and also offering rights that it previously only reserved for its citizens, which happened the past year. Um, I think just this kind of strategy of lowering the barrier between Taiwan and China, um, because Taiwan is obviously de facto independent of China, but not de jure independent. But when you do take, you know, you try to erode the boundary between Taiwanese and Chinese citizenship, that's your benefit. <clears throat> Um, it for one, apart from surveillance or anything like that, you can just uh, Beijing does want to prop up a group of people that are loyal to China's interests because they do business back and forth or they do things that have to do with China, such as study there or um, live there or work there or whatever. And this has been a strategy Beijing's relied on in the past with regards to Taishang, and this is a continuation of that strategy. Um, at the same time, if the yeah, as as Ting mentioned, if the Taiwanese government takes measures against uh, people that do live and work and study in China, then it is a accuse of authoritarianism, and b it just uh, it, it does alienate a, a part of the 
electorate that sometimes those command resources or uh, which Taiwan actually needs just because so much of trade is reliant on China and, and so forth. It's not it's not an easy dilemma to resolve by any means. Like a certain, of course, Taishang people might think that it's easier to work with one of these cards and if they get mm. one they could be persecuted at home which is mm. not a good thing for business really is mm. it not a good thing anyway another cross-strait issue this week was complaints by the dpp that apparently china is using taiwan's well open policy laws to investigate political donations made by local companies operating in china now apparently beijing is reportedly studying this information to see who donated to the dpp or other more taiwan centric political parties and the dpp says that the aim is to penalize these companies into making political statements in support of beijing as was the recent case with the cafe and bakery chain 85 degrees c now of course information about political donations here in taiwan is all publicly available under the, well, aptly named Public Donations Act. The Political Public Donations Act. So, Brian, do you think, is Beijing going to... What could it do with this, do you think? I think it's quite smart of Beijing to do this. Uh, this notion has been floated for a long time of Beijing potentially creating a blacklist of Taiwanese companies that support the DPP or are perceived as being pro-independence and so forth. Um, just as it's been also raised as a possibility that China will create a blacklist of individuals who have such views, which... Maybe it's possible through big data or social media analysis or through these ID cards, who knows. Um, and so it's a question. Um, what is ironic, though, I think, particularly regarding the 85 Degrees case, is that this is actually a company that was pro-China from the beginning. In 2014, it made a pretty strong stance in favor of the CSST trade deal um, with China, which was protested by the Sunfire Movement during the Sunfire Movement. And it was one of the companies that took a high-profile stance in regards to this. This did not prevent... 85 degrees C from coming under the uh, targeting by Chinese citizens who are outraged by its size visit to a location and threatening to boycott it, um, and criticism from state-run media. And so it's 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 also possible that um, I, I just think in general that China will take to persecuting more than just uh, so-called pro-independence companies. At the same time, this has been proposed for a long time, and so if Beijing is finally going to move on that, that would not be surprising to me either. Getting. Yeah, I mean, I think the. I mean, I just don't think the right answer is to say, okay, now we're going to, you know, not put this information out in the open, right? You know, I think that would, you know, because I, I, I think one, even if this information is not publicly available, if China really wants to spend resources on digging up this information, they could. Um, and, you know, and two, I think that is, you know, just really cutting against what why Taiwan is different from China, right? Because this information is open and this information, you know, like people are held accountable for this information. You know, I think um, if companies want to support the DPP and, you know, stay in business, um, you know, I think they do have a choice to make, right? And I think if China is going to really put its foot down on this, then, you know, I, I, I just don't think there's, much in the way of legislating that Taiwan can do to get around this. Um, the the real solution is, well, either decrease your market presence in China or, you know, you, you have a choice to make. I mean, there's concern, Brian, that in some circles that it could lead as a lead to like a decline in political donations to the DPP and other pan-green parties because people are concerned that China will find out. I wonder about that, and I wonder if this is actually a deliberate strategy by China, because uh, China's proxies in Taiwan, I think, are the KMT, and the KMT has become targeted by the party assets investigation, and so with the KMT potentially having less money to fund its activities, China could also just 
hope to do so, the same with the DPP through affecting political donations. Um, this could also be, for example, retribution uh, for the DPP's investigation into political groups in Taiwan that seem to be funded by China, such as the New Party or uh, the China Unification Promotion Party and Zhang Anle. Um, so that that is a question. And it's ironic, as was stated, that... Uh, Taiwan's democracy or, or openness and transparency makes it vulnerable to this kind of targeting, whereas the opaqueness of Chinese money in Taiwan and how they affect uh, companies, political parties, media outlets, that is something which is not clear and out in the open, and it's very hard to actually dig up or even to take action against these companies because Taiwan is democratic, and so you have to do these things in line with due process. And Uber was back in the news this week here in Taiwan when its chief operating officer, Barney Harford, attended a smart cities forum in Taipei where he told delegates that his company is planning for further expansion on the island. Now, Harford said that Uber's Taiwan plan covers self-driving technology, artificial intelligence and an integrated platform for public transportation. And he also said that the company is committed to doubling its commitment to Taiwan and will work with both the government and the private sector. Now, of course, the poor chap made a statement on Tuesday and by Thursday, the Taiwan Taxi Industry Development Alliance had said some 80,000 of its members are planning a nationwide protest over Uber's continued presence here. Now, according to the alliance, Uber's marketing strategy has led to unfair competition and is still operating as a taxi service. Now, well, that's questionable because Uber is now partnering with car rental companies with hired drivers to provide taxi services and is in fact no longer working directly with car owners as it was before when it caused all the previous trouble. Now the Ministry of Transport is defending Uber and says well currently the company is operating to the law as the term rental applies to both the rental of a car and a driver. So Uber's back in the news Brian. Taxi drivers are angry still. And that's not surprising. Um, at the same time, Uber does have the business strategy, whether in Taiwan or elsewhere in the world, of being a disruptor to uh, the local model and seeking to supplant it and then achieving market dominance in that way. Um, but I think what's quite interesting about Taiwan is Taiwan oftentimes is chasing after international trends or what it perceives to be as international trends, uh, technologically, politically, culturally, whatever. And so Uber is actually one example in which I think the government really sees Uber as a wave of innovation, as a way to make Taiwan seem high tech or chase after these international trends regarding the sharing economy. Um, with regards to Uber's ride-sharing, which no longer actually happens, but whatever. Um, and so that's that's the reason why there's so much kickbacks or so much uh, willingness by the government to really kind of move out of the way for Uber. And I think that's quite interesting. Um, I think Uber is probably aware of that themselves. Um, this is also the case with Uber operating in other smaller countries. Um, it's also interesting that... Um, American government officials have made appearances at these events, um, American officials from AID, in order to to suggest that they will help out or, or at least support this kind of cooperation between Uber and the Taiwanese government in some way. You know, I, I think there is definitely sentiment among the public in Taiwan as well as, you know, of seeing Uber as you know, sort of more advanced, um, more sort of desirable even um, to, to taxi cabs, right, to, to uh, traditional taxi cabs. Um, you know, I think with the, especially with this announcement, Uber is, um, you know, talking about sort of moving um, farther out from just competing with taxi cabs. So they're bringing in um, public transportation, they're bringing in other modes of um, transport to their platform, right? So they are thinking of themselves as more than just competing with taxis. You know, and I think, um, 
Yeah, it, it is a market, and you know, I'm not saying that Taiwanese taxi cabs don't have any room to improve on their um, service and quality of their product. But you know, I think the it, it is it is a regulated industry, you know, and I think um, as much as Uber wants to, you know, sort of spin it, um, you know, it is it it is the same market, and I think you know the government, while it is yes, like it is trying to. Put on this image as you know, we are following these international Western trends, and we are kind of technologically minded, right? You know, the the key is the 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 way to really show that yes, you understand the technology and the business model is to be able to come up with reasonable regulations and be able to sort of negotiate on the people's behalf against these companies when it does make sense, rather than just to say, hey, you know, we welcome anybody that comes in with a shiny suit and has a you know. Just, you know, has a shiny PowerPoint and, you know, anybody come, any company coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, is welcome here, right? So I think um, the the real key, the real test for the, the government's ability to be, you know, the government's claim that it is forward thinking is to be able to, to see whether they are able to come up with, um, you know, sensible regulations, you know, that does... Um, of course, one of the arguments by the taxi drivers union, Brian, was that the number of taxi drivers is limited in Taiwan to 100,000, I believe, whereas there's no current laws to limit the number of people that can drive for the companies that basically Uber is working for, or with, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I think Uber pushes towards deregulation of uh, the taxi industry in that way. Um, before, in the past, and with other, you know, in other countries, uh, Uber drivers are not regular taxi drivers, and so it's the barriers for entry are much lower. And this is, even with the kind of switchover in model which has occurred, this is still the case. And uh, taxi drivers that want to protect their industry or who is allowed to be a taxi driver um, still, it's not surprising that they would react against this kind of lower of standards. Um, at the same time, it also just has to be seen. Um, Uber, I think, is re- it's engaging in a lot of different fronts to try to really expand its reach in Taiwan, such as, for example, food delivery with Uber Eats. Um, it's quite interesting. And we'll have to see, because I think uh, even if the government does take a role in which it is highly involved with Uber, Uber does sometimes demonstrate a total willingness to defy law enforcement. Um, a prominent example would be in New York, Uber was actually figuring out through big data um, who is a police officer and who isn't, and sending different information to the accounts of police officers so that they wouldn't uh, be seen as breaking the law. And it was actually just a separate app that police officers would have. Uh, Uber just is willing to break the law and just continue going. And because it managed to have such a presence and is not going to go away anytime soon, whether in Taiwan or the world, or it, it is managed to keep going. Um, yeah. Until they get caught. Yes. Doing well, something just, eventually, which they will do. We all know that because people do eventually get caught doing silly things. Anyway, moving on, the cabinet this week said that Premier William Lai plans to outline his goals next year. Well, because the government wants to make English an official second language. Now, cabinet officials say that the policy goal is aimed at making Taiwan a bilingual country, with English and Chinese being, well, its official languages. Now, the Ministry of Education will present its second report on the matter in the coming weeks, and that will cover recommendations for improving English teaching in schools and also introducing bilingual schools or fully bilingual classes in state schools. Now, the report, though, will also 
cover legislative issues such as the feasibility of deregulation in order to help promote a broad bilingual environment. Now, the Education Ministry's committee to promote English as an official language has been carrying out public surveys and drafting a plan on how to achieve the goal since last year, in fact, when it submitted its first report to the Cabinet in June of 2017. It then focused on public surveys and asking the public what they thought. So, Brian, what do you think? You're a member of the public? <laughs> uh, yes, and I, I deeply question this uh, sudden declaration because uh, William Lai has cited Tainan, which he was mayor of, as an example of the success of this policy, yet I don't see Tainan particularly being known as a bastion of English teaching and English usage in Taiwan. Um, I almost just wonder if this is just going to be really a performative measure that will, A, spend a lot of government budget on, but B, will not have a lot of results. Um, as we all know, I think English is sometimes is commonly seen in Taiwanese society, yet in very strange ways, and that includes government, uh, government documents, government uh, official releases, um, or just in the private you know sector. Just in, you look at a menu on in a restaurant, you see a lot of strange English. Um, how to really change this culture, this deep rooted culture um, of English usage in Taiwan that will take really substantial steps. And I think sometimes perhaps this is just being used as a, a claim that the government is doing something new and innovative. And I don't know what the country is up to realize this. New, new Brian was a bad word to use there because Chen Shui-bian did exactly the same in about 2002. Yeah, and which nothing is not, uh, came successful. of that at all, basically. Um, it seems that way. And also just, you know, actually makes me think of that Taiwan's policies to try to internationalize have just repeated themselves. Um, first, you have that. You also even have the, the first new South, uh, the, you have the first southbound policy under Li Donghui. Um, and you have this current promotion of language teaching for Southeast Asian languages uh, under the new southbound policy. And so this is maybe just another case in which the old ideas come up again. Um, I mean, personally, I was coming here today and in the MRT, I saw I Love Paris in the bathroom and I was like, okay, this is a Taurin, so why is this here? Why does it refer to Paris? Things like that. Um, that's just commonplace. And um, For example, is the government going to really spend resources on changing all these instances of bad English, which are ubiquitous in Taipei or elsewhere? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think, if anything, that would increase, hopefully, the number of people listening to ICRT, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I... I I know this this has been sort of debated for um, a long time, and I think one might be surprised as to who is in support and who is not in support of um, of this. You know, I, I think if I just have to say, you know, if they really want to do it, you know, I think it takes um, it's going to take a lot of effort, right? And you know, I think the places where English has become an official language that are outside of, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon or English originally sort of English-speaking peoples, all right, you look at India, you look at Singapore, um, you know, these people, these places were colonized by the British, and that's why English is spoken there, right? And so I think for Taiwan to sort of do this by fiat, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm curious as to what the reports will say and what people, you know, what people say about this. I personally think everyone will forget about it until like 15 more years and someone else will come up with the idea. That's me being cynical, though, on that one. That's right. I think also just there's not a lot lot of thought given to this. I think uh, perhaps Taiwan just thinks, oh, well, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, those are also also ethnic Han territories. We can just be like them. It's not a lot of thought to how do you actually get there. Um, It wouldn't be a bad policy if it was realized in a... 
uh, you know, actually realized or actually pushed for with a lot of effort behind it, but that might just not happen. And then you have the question you know, about... Then, Sorry, carry on, oh, Jetty. Well, I mean, then again, right, so Taiwan, you know, was the people in Taiwan were forced to speak Japanese, you know, by fiat, and then forced <laughs> to speak Mandarin by fiat, right? And so, you know, who is not to say in 50 years or in 25 years, you know, English is the most common language spoken in Taiwan. Well, well, I think that, you know, if by that logic, then, you know, America or some other English-speaking country will have to take over. Um, on the other hand, if China takes over, well, everyone already speaks Mandarin. Well, right, then <laughs> we have other problems to worry about. <laughs> anyway, before we go this week, garbage was in the news here this week with, firstly, environmental groups Greenpeace and the Society of Wilderness releasing a report that said over 14,000 tonnes of marine debris has accumulated along Taiwan. Taiwan's coastline so far this year. Now, that stems from an investigation the two groups launched in July to measure the degree of marine litter polluting the coastline. And they say that 121 monitoring stations were set up along Taiwan's 1,210-kilometre coastline, and each station was in charge of monitoring litter for a 100-metre stretch. Now, if you're interested, the dirtiest locations happen to be on the Provincial Highway Number 2 section in New Taipei's Feng District, while the second dirtiest section of coastline was in the Hao Mei Liao wetland in Jai County's Budai Township. Now, if that wasn't enough garbage for you, a report that made the front pages of the Apple Daily this week said that Taiwan is actually importing large amounts of garbage. So it's got its own garbage on the coastline and Taiwan is importing more garbage. Apparently, according to the Apple Daily, one million tonnes of foreign waste, paper and plastics were imported between January and July of this year and that was enough to fill 40,000 shipping containers. Now, the trash is brought here for recycling purposes. Obviously, Taiwan doesn't import people's trash for no reason whatsoever. But the government is getting rather fed up with all this trash that people are importing. And it says it's now seeking to restrict the amount of trash and what type of trash can be imported for recycling purposes. They also say that, well, the uptick in the amount of trash being imported is because China actually banned other countries from sending trash there earlier this year. Yeah, I think that is an issue, uh, particularly because Taiwan has very limited land mass. And when you are spending large parts of it, just recycling things or burying other people's garbage, then that, that raises concerns about the environment. Um, Taiwan does have a high rate of recycling and is known for this internationally, yet at the same time, it does have a culture of convenience, let's say, in which you can just obtain food or plastic items, and oftentimes these are not actually taken care of, they're just discarded, um, particularly in tourist sites such as beaches. Um, beaches become dirty fast, and this ends up in Taiwan's oceans. Um, also, just, for example, casual littering, throwing something into, let's say, the sewer, let's say a cigarette butt, um, that might eventually just end up in the ocean, and that just leads to more debris building up. Um, and that, that that is concerning, particularly because, again, Taiwan does have limited land mass, and uh, for it to get polluted, then, then what? Yeah, you know, I obviously, you know, I, I don't think anybody would say, you know, we should have, we shouldn't have less garbage, Um you know, I, I think the if you look at it from a more economics perspective, right, there is a market for um, recycling services, right? And that's why, you know, for better or for worse, um, certain industries and certain, uh, you know, enterprises in Taiwan are taking up this, um, this business, right? And so if you look at it that way, how do you change the economics or, you know, to, to make these, you know, services either less 
marketable or um, you know you increase the efficiency of um, these services that these companies are producing. Um, you know, I, I think yes, as, as as Brian said, Taiwan is um, sort of does have this sort of international brand image of being a you know sort of a, a recycling powerhouse. You know, sort of very um, much more uh, you know environmentally minded supposedly than people say in the United States, right? And I think that is a good image to have. And you know, I think reports like this definitely um, sort of speaks to the opposite direction, right? And you know, I think it's yeah, it's really up to, I think it's up to everybody to see how, you know, what we can do about this. It is interesting. I think it does point to certain systematic issues regarding Taiwan's relation to China. If there's a, if the reason why garbage is uh, returning to Taiwan because China is no longer taking it, um, that points to how Taiwan still takes up things that China doesn't want to do now because China wants to advance beyond a certain point. Um, it is actually strange for me, for example, to see that some people have celebrated that factories are returning to Taiwan in some places, in some places, um, because of the U.S.-China trade war. And so it's strange that factories returning to Taiwan is celebrated when um, factories moving away from Taiwan, or usually the pattern of development is that if factories move out, that means the, the society is moving towards, say, a consumer-driven uh, service sector economy, um, rather than focusing on manufacturing as it was during development of the economy or building up the economy. Um, and so maybe this is another case in point, actually. But of course, like, yeah, Brian, I mean, if, carry on, Jetting. Oh, no, I'm saying, I just want to say, you know, we can always put this to a referendum. <laughs> another one. Yeah, I was going to say maybe because, as Brian pointed out, Taiwan is a very small place. So maybe larger places should take more garbage. Or it depends on who has empty landmass, but, yeah. But there's not so. a lot of empty landmass yeah, anywhere, that's, you know, because you only mess up what shouldn't be messed up. But, yeah, you know, yeah. Anyway, we're going to leave it there here on Taiwan This Week, This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Jie Ting Ye. Good night as well. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps, where you're probably listening to this show now. But you can also get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.